Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Um, I think uh, I just want to mention that even just you being here is... uh, um, is, is a sense of warfare, and you'd be like, whoa, what, it just, this is a, a little intense. But no, even just your presence here is basically saying that I am not going to be controlled by comfort and convenience and safety and security. And, uh, and so thank you so much for being here. As was said, my name is Nick, and uh, I have the privilege of talking this morning uh, about a very important aspect of the character of God. Um, Those of you that have been with us for a while will know that we have recently finished our series on Jonah, and through the book of Jonah, uh, we were asking the question, is it possible for God to be 100% just and 100% merciful? And that's a lot of the problem that people have with this idea of God, is that in order for God to be fully just, He can't be merciful, or in order for Him to be merciful, He can't be fully just. And so we tried through the weeks to be able to answer that, and hopefully we did. But this morning, there's a sense in which we're going to continue that conversation based on the justice and mercy that we have received in terms of what that looks like for us to be a people of justice and mercy. Literally exactly a year ago, I was preaching at a church in Nepal. Um, I uh, had a tiny little translator, and when I mean a tiny little translator. He was tiny. And I remember being excited, coming back home, not really understanding everything that was happening in kind of the COVID stratosphere and how people were beginning to kind of shake. I was excited because, um, because Maddie had, we'd, we'd offered Maddie a job to be the liaison between the YMCA and the greatest city in order to help us function more effectively in the context of justice and mercy. And she was going to start in April, and we were all ready to go with like a really formed idea and plan on how we were going to engage in justice and mercy, and and COVID hit. And as you know, most of last year has been um, basically a a kind of gathering the wagons to actually see, okay, God, what what is happening What are you doing? What are you saying? But now we took some time as elders and we went away and we wanted to ask that question, God, what is it that you're calling us to specifically in the area of justice and mercy? Uh, We had some ideas in the past and are those some of the things that you want to maintain or are they they not? Are those your notes, babe? Are you wanting to preach? Are you? So, okay. It's It's just really odd that you would bring sermon notes knowing that I'd be preaching, you know, so... Like, I'm not even going to ask who wants to hear her preach because I know I'll be deeply disappointed by the answer to that. So we went away as, as, a, as, uh, as elder couples and uh, we want to we ask this question, God, what does that look like? And we felt like God spoke to us out of Exodus. And I'm going to read this passage. And this is where God tells Moses, Moses, I've chosen you and I want you to go and I want you to relieve Uh, the Jewish nation from slavery. I want you to rescue them. And this is Moses' reply. Moses answered, says, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me? And, uh, And said, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord asked him, 
What is that in your hand? The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? And so this morning, I'm wanting us to answer the question, what is in our hands? What is it that's in our hands that God can use? So Moses replies, and, and he says, a staff or a staff. Um, you know, let's just call it a rod. That way we both know what we're talking about. Um, so he said, uh, a rod. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And so Moses throws it on the ground, and it became a snake. And he ran from it. I'm like... Some, you know, sometimes we don't read Scripture with a sense of personal investment and engagement. And so I'm thinking to myself, I mean, God knows that Moses is not the most courageous person in the world. I mean, he's already having a conversation with Moses where Moses is trying to get out of what God is asking him to do. And so in God's infinite wisdom, he decides that the way he's going to motivate Moses is to turn his rod into a snake, and Moses runs away from it. And, and so, of course, how many of us would run away from a snake? But this is the most interesting part of the Scripture. He came back. It doesn't say he came back. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. Okay, God, because that makes perfect sense. I'll grab it by the tail. He stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff or a rod again in his hand. Now, the point of that scripture is not so much the snake and the rod and, and, and being scary. I just thought that was a, a little uh, funny. The point of that is that often God uses what's in our hands that we think is very ordinary and we think is for a specific purpose and completely shifts and changes that in order to provide freedom for the people around us. And so this morning we're asking, what is in your hands? The other question that God challenged us with as we went um, away as elders was, who are you partnering with? Those of you that know the story of, of Moses, we know that he had two primary partners. One was his brother-in-law, Aaron, and the other one was his father-in-law, Jethro. And, and Aaron would go with Moses and would help him communicate because Moses said to God, I'm not really a very good communicator. He says, okay, take, take your brother Aaron. But Jethro was someone who knew uh, the area that they were going into. And Jethro was someone that God said to Moses, you can use this person's insight and you can use their wisdom to do what I've called you to do. I love this amazing mixture of God doing supernaturally powerful things like changing a rod into a snake and then doing very, very practical things like aligning us with partners in the context of the community to, be help, to help us to bring freedom to the people God has called us to. This is all Patrick's fault because he chose the song saying, you know, um, regardless of the wind blowing, I will serve you. And I'm like, maybe we shouldn't have been so on the nose with the lyrics this morning, you know. So we ask the question, God, what is in our hands? God, who are we partnering with? And the most important question that God said was, who am I? Do you know who I am? Psalm 146 gives us a clear explanation of this God that we praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in, son, in the son of a man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, 
whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. God is concerned about truth. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoner. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed to him. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers or immigrants or sojourners. He relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Simple definition of mercy and justice is this. Mercy is help and relief in the moment. It's prevent Justice, though, is a little more complicated. It is preventing or ending the need for that help or mercy in the first place. Mercy is also part of our name as Mercy Commons. It's also the way in which our four pillars, in terms of the values that we espouse as a community, are fulfilled. We are a people that revel in the mercies of God. We are a people that proclaim the mercies of God. We're a people that demonstrate the mercies of God in the way in which we live. And we are a people that participate in acts of mercy for the good of our city. Now, the challenge with justice and mercy is that we understand that eradication is not the goal, nor is it even possible. Now, Jesus tells us that the poor you will always have with you. Now, that is not a cop-out. That is not a reason to get uninvolved. Uh, that is uh, just a, a, a kind of a marker to help us understand uh, that our desire to be a people of justice and mercy is less about the eradication of it because we know that until Jesus returns, that full justice and mercy will never be um, revealed on this earth. But it is a way in which we can reveal the nature and character of this God that we serve by the way in which we act. And so that is what is the critical thing about this. Again, it doesn't mean that we can just, we're off the hook because of what Jesus has said. Bonhoeffer says that we are not simply to bandage the wounds of a, of a victim that has been hurt beneath the wheels of injustice, but that we are to drive a spoke into that wheel itself. God's Old Testament laws were designed to show the people around Israel that he was a God that was close to the poor, to the immigrant, and to the widow. Because in those days, gods were close to the people that were powerful and rich and in control. His Old Testament laws were designed to show us that he is generous and that he is just and that he is merciful. Will, do you want me to change? No. So the question that hopefully will be a helpful one is, who do we do mercy to? Well, the first is the community of faith. The second is the city that we live in. And the third is our global village. The community of faith is important. Let me try this. I don't exactly know how I'm going to do hold this and my notes at the same time. So... Community of faith. In, uh, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul is talking to a specific church, and he says to them in verse 9, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How many of us have felt like giving up in the context of justice and mercy? So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Now, this is the key here. And especially to those who are of the household 
of faith. God had always set a series of law in place that laws in place that were specifically for Israel. And this was in order to be able to show the countries around, living around Israel, that this is a nation that lives with different rules, that lives with a different expectation of who God is and of each other. It it was to show people that they were separate from them in the way in which they handled issues of justice and mercy. But our major call in the way in which we get to do justice and mercy is firstly to the household and family of God. For what reason? So that we can model exactly what Jesus said. The way in which we love each other is an apologetic for a world that is looking at us and the way in which we, we behave. Ultimately, in Scripture, we know that there, there were Scriptures like there were no needy among them. There was a sense in which everyone in a community of faith is not only invested in that community of faith, but is cared for by that community of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that that is the only area that we function in, but it functions from a priority perspective. Firstly, to the household of God. Secondly, to the city in which we live in. The Israelites were a poor, racially oppressed, immigrant working class in Egypt. And that is why God constantly calls them to uphold the rights of the poor, immigrant, fatherless, and the orphan. Oftentimes, God will remember, and even in the scripture that we read, remember when you were in Egypt. Remember what that felt like. And have your eyes open to the people that are around you that are experiencing the same thing. The Roman Emperor Julian says this, or said this, about Christians. And he's talking to one of his, um, to, actually to a historian. He says, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to stranger. These impious, and he, he called Christians impious because they wouldn't worship him. These impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So there is a sense in which we understand that our primary um, avenue of expressing justice and mercy and expressing help and generosity to the household of God, it is not the only avenue. And there is an expectation, both through Jesus' teachings, especially on the parable of the Samaritan, but also broadly throughout Scripture, that the city in which we live in should benefit from the way in which we live. How many of you know that uh, verse in Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to do you good, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Well, it is probably the most um, taken out of context verse in the Bible. And the beginning of the verse starts with, with uh, uh, the the beginning of that thought starts with verse 7, where he's saying to, Jeremiah is saying to the Israelites, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And I know that a lot of us feel like we don't belong in our city. I know that a lot of us feel in terms of our beliefs and in terms of what we understand, the way we live our lives, what we proclaim, that we don't really belong, that we're in exile. But he says, he says this to an exiled Israel, pray to the Lord on its behalf, your city, and for in its welfare, you will find welfare. And there's a sense of obligation, biblical obligation that we have for the city in which we live in. Thirdly, our national and global village. Like I said a year ago, I had the privilege of being in Nepal. Man, does traveling to different countries and nations give you a sense of perspective? Where people are dying because they have no access to simple antibiotics. Where people are dying because they don't have water. Where people are dying because they don't have food. And suddenly our first world problems take on a different hue. 
It doesn't mean that they're not important to us. It doesn't mean that, that there aren't traumas that are caused to us because of that. But when we, when we understand and we open our gaze, not only to the household of God, not only to the city that we live in, but to the global village that we're part of, we, we are actually shifted and changed. Something happens in us when, when we realize that. Biblically, we see this consistently when Paul asks the rich Corinthian church to help the poorer Judean church, which is in a place of famine and drought. And so we see this idea that there are believers that are scattered around the world that deserve our help and support. We currently help and support churches in India and Nepal, not only through our partnership with Advance, but also directly through Mercy Commons, financial support, leadership development, training of leaders, planting and strengthening of churches. And I mean, I hope to take another team there in November. I would love to expose some of you guys to what God is doing in India and Nepal. So if this is the nature of God, and God has shown us through the Scripture who we are supposed to do justice and mercy to, or with rather, then why don't we do it? I think the first reason we don't do it is because we are overwhelmed by the need and complexity of the problem. There are so many causes of poverty. The, the Bible just tells us there are, there are three main causes of poverty. One of them is oppression. Oppression causes poverty. The other one is calamity. Uh, you know, if you, if you think of earthquakes or you think of tsunamis or you think of hurricanes, that, that causes poverty. But there's also personal moral failure that causes poverty. And th this is complex. We, we, we try to help and, we, and, we, and, we, and we're stuck in this thing of like, well, whose fault is this? And, and, and the, the complexity of the need in our cultural eyes affects the way in which we do things. I mean, there are nonprofits that can't work together because the way in which they believe uh, the, the problem should be solved, or even what the root problem is, is they, there isn't agreement on that. So they can't even work together on that. It's complex. It's overwhelming. I remember talking with a pastor in India, and, and he was saying to me, so there's a lot of work that the West has done in order to eradicate child labor in India. And everyone's like, yeah, that's right. Children shouldn't be working. And he says, you know that in some villages, the only income a family will get is the income that that child gets from child labor. And so now we have families that are starving because there is no child labor available to them. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying child labor is a positive thing, not by any means. I, I think it, it is, it's wrong. But it's complex because here an Indian pastor is asking me, well, what do we do? And I'm like, oh, we just end child. Oh, okay. Well, that didn't really help us. So the problem is complex. And so what we want to do is just, okay, well, I'm glad I get on a plane and come back to California. It's just too complex. I can't get involved in that. One of the other reasons we don't get involved is, for, is because of fatigue, which leads to cynicism. Man, I've tried. Many of us have tried. We've been hurt. We've been abused. Our motives have been judged. The problem has gotten worse, and now we're just tired. I showed my girls this little uh, Instagram clip. There are these two men um, that are, are following this lady, and this lady has enough, and she gets out, and she starts screaming at them. This is why we have so much abuse against women. This is why women can't, um, can't go out on their own. You, you pigs, why don't you go do something with your lives, etc., etc. And, 
And, and they're like, lady, lady, wait, just wait, just please just wait. Just. She had left the gas station and pulled the hose completely off the, off the car and was dragging it down the road as she was going. And they were trying to stop her from getting into an accident. And so we've, we've all been there when we've had our motives questioned. We've all been there when we've tried to help and, and it hasn't been seen as help. It's been seen as harmful at best or racist and judgmental at worst. And so what we do is we just, we just give up. I'm tired, I'm cynical. And the reason why I'm tired and cynical is because I'm motivated by guilt or I'm motivated by obligation and not love. And so, so, we go, so we go on. What are some of the defense mechanisms I might use if I am cynical or if I'm tired? Well, one of the best ones is this. Well, Nick, we're called to be good stewards. And so we shouldn't waste our resources on people that are going to abuse these resources. Well, imagine Jesus saying, my blood... And my body is so precious, and I'm not going to waste it on people that will abuse that. That level of sacrifice is too high. It's funny how we use the stewardship example when it comes to keeping our money and resources. No, no, you've got to be a good steward. But do you know what steward is? Steward means that you don't own it. It means that you're looking after it for someone else. And they will come and they will ask you for a report on how that was spent or not spent. And so it's funny how the stewardship excuse is something that we use in order not to give. But it's not something that we really believe if we, if we believe that it isn't ours. And that part of what God has called us to do is to be generous with that. Or that people have made bad decisions. You know, these, these people are poor. It's because of the bad decisions that they've made in terms of their family. And so they don't deserve our help. After all, Nick, doesn't the Bible say that you reap what you sow and they've sown in the flesh and so they will reap in the flesh? Well, I'm just so glad that when I came to the cross empty-handed, Jesus didn't say to me, well, you're kind of forgiven, but there were a lot of things that you did out of your own stupidity that you just have to pay for. And I'll let you know when that's over, and then, then, I, can, then I can help you. I need you to prove that this area of your life is taken care of, and I need you to do that for a while in order to deserve my love and affection, forgiveness, and mercy. I know this is a little heavy. But unless we connect our generosity, works of justice and mercy to the ultimate act of justice and mercy that we received, it will always just be a social or political concept. It's up to the church. The reason I don't get involved is because, you know, I, I just pay my tithe and it's up to the church. You guys have got to handle it. Well, yes and no. It is the church's role to educate and create opportunities for engagement. But it's not an organization that will bring change. It's individuals within the organization that will bring that change. Who is the church? You are. Right? That's what we say at the end of every gathering. We say, go out there and be the church. And so the church's role is to evangelize and nurture believers in Christian communities. And if the church is successful in that, it produces people that engage in all spheres of society, 
and they believe and they act in distinct ways as disciples of Jesus that revel, proclaim, demonstrate, and participate in acts of common good. The church is compelled to offer relief. The church is compelled to offer mercy. But the church is not equipped for the larger, more difficult, complex areas of the reforming of structures that cause to and contribute to injustice. The church's role, and this role, is done by people that are specifically gifted and talented. And the church's role is to support, disciple, and care for these men and women. That's why one of the key things that we looked at is what are the partnerships that we can engage in where God has called people to be specifically active and engaged in this area where we feel like there is something they can lead us into and teach us with regards to mercy and justice. Does that make sense? So, for example, we've done summer school. Jeannie's led Soulful Summer School at Richmond Elementary. Um, life groups are currently... Um, are going to adopt families within Richmond Elementary School and provide food once a month with an opportunity for relational engagement if the family so chooses to do that. Uh, we have provided after-school programs or mentoring programs, et cetera, et cetera. But what we cannot do is change the social structure of how schools function in that way. What we can do is what we can do. And so that's what we're focusing on in the context of mercy and justice. So how can we all do mercy and justice? So, I mean, if it's, if it's so complicated, Nick, how can we all do it? Well, Deuteronomy has an answer in Deuteronomy 24, verse 20 to 22. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remain, and sh sorry, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. And you're like, well, great. Thanks, Nick. I don't have an olive tree. I don't have a vineyard. This is not helpful to me in any way of helping me understand how it is that I'm to participate in acts of mercy for the common good of the city that we live in. Well, the first and most important thing that we get out of this is, is we, we need to create margins in our lives. So, biblically, what would happen is God would tell his people, you have your vineyard, you have your olive tree, and when you harvest it, you make sure that you don't take all of the fruit off of that tree or off of that vineyard, because what you would do is you would allow the poor and the fatherless and the immigrant into your field, and then they would pick what was left. Do you understand the concept? So it's this idea of not squeezing every ounce of profit out so that you can allow people to come in with dignity and actually take what they need. And you are not determining how they use it. They could eat it. They could plant it. They could trade it. But what you're doing is you're providing an opportunity for them to receive in, in, a, in a dignified way the help that they need. Does that make sense? How do we do this in our lives? Well, number one, we have to understand that if we are truly going to say that we are stewards, that we need to understand that none of this belongs to us. And the concept, the Old Testament concept of gleaning was over and above the tithe. 
So this is not just money that you give to the church storehouse. This is a sense of actually saying over and above that generosity, there's a sense in which you've called me to be generous in the realm of justice and mercy. So what does that look like? Well, maybe it looks like when you hire a day laborer, not paying them the absolute minimum. Maybe that looks like if you're running a business, that you provide some services that are over and above what the law requires. In fact, I would say that the law, whatever the law requires, is the base minimum, the low bar of what we can do. When we choose to spend our money or spend our time, are we spending every little bit of it on us? Or are we allowing some fruit on the tree so that if someone has a need, they are able to use that? Does that make sense? I love this way of giving. This way of giving, you, you don't have um, any way of stopping who comes into your field. Basically what God is saying, you harvest that. Make sure you leave some so that the poor and the oppressed and the fatherless can come and take. But there is no, you're not involved. You can't say to this person, you're worthy and you're not. Why is that? Because most of us tend to think that generosity is like investing in a small business. So what we're looking for is a high rate of return. I've done this, guys. This is why I can say this. When, when God has challenged me to be generous with, with an individual, it's easy for me to be generous with someone that is faithful and sacrificial and committed. They've just hit hard times. I remember one day God saying to me, as, I was, as he was challenging me in this, I want you to give a not insignificant amount of money to the least deserving person you can think of. And then I was like, that can't be God. <laughs> that makes no sense. God, that's going to be a complete waste. I could give that money. I could spread it around three people, and those people will multiply that. God, there's, there's this parable where there are talents, and you give them to people that do something with the talents. He's like, yeah, there's also the shedding of the blood of my son for an undeserving people that I did not hold back at all. God loved, he gave to us, undeserving enemies of God, while we were yet enemies. Now, am I saying everyone needs to do that? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that broke something in me because I recognized that my generosity was not generosity. My generosity was shark investment. It was like, yeah, I can see that. I can see that, that whatever I give here is going to get a return. That's not what God has called us to. We need to count the cost. Like I said, the Old Testament concept of gleaning was over and above tithing. You need to count the cost of your unharvested fruit. And you can't sit there and dwell over it. Do you think these guys sat there and said, man, if I just picked up Another pound more olives and I could have more oil and I could have more. No, it's not yours. None of it is. So when we have this idea that none of it is mine and I get to keep what God allows me to keep, it changes the way in which we view our time, our talents, our treasures, our perspectives. We need to count the cost in terms of our time. This is one thing I've recognized in the context of not only this community, but many others. We get involved in an area that kind of really stirs us from a justice and mercy perspective. And we expect and assume that other people 
are going to be as jazzed and as sacrificial and as generous as we are about this. I mean, I'll be honest, maybe, maybe this is not the right thing to be honest about, but I cannot get excited about rescuing dogs from China. I'm, I'm just, I, I can't, when there are so many other things. Now, you want to rescue a dog from China? Great. Go do that. But don't judge other people in their willingness to be or not be involved in something that God has told you to do. And so what we do is we say, okay, I'm going to get involved in this. And I've seen this. I'm being in, in church leadership for so many years. And then there is a sense of deep disappointment because the rest of the community and your friends are not engaged in the way in which you are engaged. The question I have to ask is, did God ask you to do this? Then do it with grace and faith. Now, the opposite of that is also true. The opposite of that is when the, where the Bible tells us clearly in James that if you see your brother has a need, if you see your sister is naked or destitute, you have a responsibility to go help. And so this is a wonderful, again, a wonderful kind of circle in which the person that is motivated by this great need for justice and mercy is motivated because God has spoken to them and is not expecting anyone else to do that. But we are looking as a community, as a family, for opportunities in which we can help. And so that's where it works the best. Each man must give in his own heart what he is determined to give with a happy heart. Why am I the only one sacrificing for this? Now, guys, don't get involved in something if you're going to get your heart twisted because other people aren't involved in it. Get involved in something because you believe it's important. And don't get involved in something assuming that you're going to have the help that you need from other people and get upset when they're not engaged. Like a silly example of this is, is restaurants, right? Well, I said to someone, you have to eat at this restaurant. And someone said, I have to? Really? I have to? Yes, it is the best food you will ever have. Well, I did that probably, I haven't done that in about five years. You know why? It never works out for me. They never come back and say, Nick, you are absolutely 100% right. That is the best meal I've ever had. I'm so grateful that you told me I have to go and eat there. And so what happens is when God stirs our heart in generosity or aspects of justice and mercy, then, and then, God, then we are like, this has changed my life. This will change your life too. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to encourage others to be engaged in that way. But when we get our hearts twisted because of it, that's when it goes awry. So how can we all do it? We intentionally create margins. We count the cost. And then we focus. I can't do everything, but I must do something. If I claim to follow the God that I love and who loves me unconditionally, there is something I can do. I can, at a minimum, pray. I can, at a minimum, use my voice to God and use my voice to other people. I can at least stand up in the context of injustice and say, this is wrong. I can say that to God. I can say that to other people. But God is calling us to more. Francis Chan says that we need to err on the side of action because we tend to default to negligence. In other words, if we're waiting to be stirred to something, we probably aren't going to do anything. Let's do something, even if it isn't ultimately what we would totally want to do or feel like is the right thing to do. Some of us will do more. Some of us will do less. 
But every one of us can commit to a posture that glorifies Jesus by the way in which we live. So what are some of the opportunities for engagement in the context of Mercy Commons? So as I said, we went away and we try to answer these three questions. God, what is in our hand? God, who are you partnering us with? And then out of the parable where Jesus says, no man goes to war without counting how many fighting men he has. And no man builds a tower without checking whether he has enough bricks to do it. And so, so we want to extend ourselves with faith and risk, but we also don't want to fail right off the bat with these huge, big endeavors. And so the two areas that um, I'm calling us to be engaged in, or at least providing an opportunity for you to be engaged in, um, when we answer the question, God, what is in our hand? The answer was orphan care and the education gap. Now, how, how do you figure that? Well, number one, we have people in our community that are already engaged in orphan care. So we have people that are fostering. We have people that are fostering to adopt. Um, we also have people in the context of our community that are working for organizations that help with that. And so one of the areas that we want to um, kind of stir up is the, the, con the concept of respite care for those that are wanting to foster and adopt. What does respite care look, look like? It means, it means that there are people that are able to help a mom that, is, that has a new placement. So like April is currently looking after someone and her life group is doing a great job. But what we wanna do is we wanna firm up support around foster families so that they are able to do what God has called them to do. Now, you may be able to give groceries, you may be able to give rides, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things that we want to do is create more intentional care communities. So where is Hannah? There's Hannah. Hannah's currently an, um, uh, an foster mom. Um, and there's a lot of things on her plate in April's. And one of those things is visits. Um, visits are a necessity when you are fostering a child. And what that means is if you have more than one child, like April, you sometimes need your children taken from one place to another. Nick, this is way too much detail. Yeah, I know. But, but in reality, what I'm saying is all of us can do something. And so if you want to get engaged in that area, talk to Hannah. Heather McLeod works for OC United. Where's Heather? Over there. Why don't you stand up? Now, OC United does a lot of things. But one of the things that we are excited about having Heather as part of our community is that she works with a group called Thrive. Um, and Thrive works with aged out foster kids. And those of you that don't know, that once you have been in foster care, the minute you turn 18, it's like, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And what OC United is doing is trying to create an environment of care to be able to properly educate these kids for a life beyond foster care. Um, and so that's one of the partnerships that we want to develop. A simple thing that Neil is heading up on March 20th. Dylan, do you want to preach? Simple thing. I sat with Heather and I said, how, how can we help you guys? She says, you know, one of the things that happens with the girls in our houses is that they get ripped off every time they go to a mechanic. They don't know any better. Or they don't put oil in the car because no one told them you should put oil in the car. And so they've spent hundreds of dollars that they don't really have. And so a very simple thing that we're doing is Neil's going to put a team together. And on March 20th, we're going to ask the girls and the guys in the house 
hey, who wants to learn about car maintenance? Who needs their brakes fixed? Who needs their oil changed? So that not only can we educate you on this, but we can actually provide practical help. Neil's heading that up. That's happening March 20th. Why am I giving you such focused examples? Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's pretty low bar, Nick. Can we at least do the low bar stuff? And then actually ask God, okay, give us more. Give us more. Now, this is not about proving anything to God. This is more about actually being able to say to ourselves, we, we, could, we can take that on, God. We can take on more than that. Give us more than that. The education gap has always been a very, very difficult thing. In the context of Fullerton, we know that there are schools that are flying, and we know that there are schools that are struggling. Um, Karen's had the privilege, and she does consider it a privilege, uh, to be substitute teaching during this time in like under-resourced schools in special ed classes. That is something else, let me tell you. One of the things that we realized is we have educators in our community. Um, you know, we, we have people that are engaged with this, and we also have partnerships with other organizations where we can say, how can we close the education gap in the city. Now, we can't do it for every school, right? But one of the things that we've done for seven years is we've engaged with Richmond Elementary School. And so over seven years, we've done Love Fullerton, where, we, where we've gone there and we've helped them in a practical way, where we've served um, the, the families, the under-resourced families that, that need food. And now we have an opportunity through our partnership with the Fullerton Collaborative to adopt a school. And one of the schools, obviously, that we're going to adopt is Richmond Elementary. It gives us an opportunity to really put hands to this idea of not only justice and mercy, but create an opportunity for relationship so that we are able to better love and serve our city. Guys, you can come up here. Actually, you know what, Amanda? Why don't you come up here too? As Neil said, I didn't know... I didn't know anything about Amanda's uh, spoken word. I am one of the things as a leader is that I'm, I'm so grateful to be surrounded by people that hear God and want to engage themselves in not only hearing but speaking what God has said. And one of the massive things that I wanted to communicate is not just the opportunities to be engaged, but the why. And the why is because we have been recipients of ultimate justice and mercy. Ultimate justice was achieved on the cross because sin is brutal, like we heard in the poem, and needs to be atoned for. But ultimate justice was purchased by ultimate mercy in Jesus Christ. So the way in which we get motivated is not because we get excited about the fact that there's a cool idea. We don't get guilted into it or obliged to be part of it, it should be a response of the grace and justice and mercy that we have received. And so one of the things I want to do is, is ask you to just close your eyes and listen again to Amanda's spoken word <laughs> while she fetches
What is the weight of the word grace? At times it seems so light like a butterfly, and indeed it lifts off of us the crushing weight of guilt. Yet at the same time, it is a weighty word, grace. A word we toss about so carelessly like it's a little rubber ball or sprinkle on our salad tossed with the fruit of the spirit. We glide along glibly on the glass surface of grace, not realizing that grace is shocking, scandalous, upending expectations and barriers and tables where we've counted out exact change to pay for the injustices of the world and our own sins. Yet he enacted a change in a glorious exchange of fulfilling that exacting change he paid in blood. He, the richest one in all the universe, gave what was most precious. He paid in blood. Blood enough to cover every man who's exploited a woman, every woman starring in the porn business, every doctor who's killed the yet unborn, every punk who's been on a shooting rampage, every nation that's launched a genocide, every bully, liar, cheat, and prig, every wail, tear, and silent affliction. Justice screamed for repayment. He paid in blood. Grace. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.